Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now age of radio this podcast contains adult content Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. All right. So before we get going, I do have to give a huge thank you to Nikki Cropper. She is the one who put this episode together. Awesome research. And it is a very intriguing case. Uh, It's one of those cases where there's a suicide theory. Evidence points to murder. It's still an open investigation. But before we get going, I do have to thank Justin Nelson. He's the newest member of Patreon. For those of you who are interested, you can go check out the backlog of episodes. I am still a little bit behind with a full-length episode that I owe for last month or whatever. I also have some uh, other episodes i got to record for December coming up. So if you want to go check out the tiers, there's a $2, $5, and $10 tier. People who are in the $10 tier, please get a hold of me. Reach out. Uh, so we can get your your monthly video calls. You can email me, message me on social media, whatever you want to do. Anybody else who's interested, you want to go check the stuff out, you can go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. And with all that behind us, let's go ahead and get into the case. Alright, so today we're talking about the death of Jonathan Luna, and like I had previously mentioned, it's a very odd case. There is a suicide theory, but there's also a lot of evidence that points to murder. Um, It's still an open investigation, even though the initial cause of death was ruled homicide. So, a little bit about Jonathan. He was born October 21st, 1965, to a Filipino father and African-American mother. He received his undergraduate degree from Fordham University and received his law degree from the University of North Carolina School of Law. He married an obstetrician named Angela Hopkins on August 29, 1993, and the two of them had two children together. He worked at Arnold and Porter in Washington, D.C. from 1993 to 94. Then he worked at the Federal Trade Commission from 1994 to 97. 
He also served as a prosecutor in Brooklyn, New York, before moving to Baltimore, Maryland to become an assistant United States attorney. So in December of 2003, Luna has a lot of stuff going on in the world of law with his job and also his personal life. Luna was in the midst of a major drug case against two men named Walter Poindexter and Dion Smith. The pair were accused of selling heroin out of their music studio, which was called Slash House Records. They were represented by attorneys Kenneth Ravenel and Arcangelo Tuminelli. On the night of December 3rd, 2003, Luna called the defense attorneys and told them he would fax over some documents that night, but he never did. Around 9 p.m. that night, after spending all day working on the Poindexter Smith case, he called a co-worker and left a message saying he was leaving the office soon and would continue to work from home. And here's the timeline of events. At 11.38 p.m., Luna's vehicle departs the U.S. courthouse in Baltimore. He left his glasses, which he needed to drive, and his cell phone on his desk. At 11.49 p.m., 11 minutes later, his vehicle passes through Fort McHenry Tunnel Toll Plaza in Baltimore, and he was heading northbound on Interstate 95. At 12.28 a.m., on December 4th, his vehicle continues northbound and passes through the Perryville Toll Plaza in Maryland. At 12.46 a.m., his vehicle passes through Delaware Line Toll Plaza. After three toll interchanges, he switched from using his Easy Pass to buying toll tickets. At 12.57 a.m., his ATM card was used to withdraw $200 from the ATM at the JFK Plaza Service Center near Newark, Delaware. At 2.37 a.m., his vehicle gets on the New Jersey Turnpike at exit 6A from Route 130. At 2.47 a.m., his vehicle enters the Pennsylvania Turnpike at exit 359, which is the Delaware River Bridge. About 45 minutes later, at 3.20 a.m., his debit card was used to buy gas at the Sunoco gas station at the King of Prussia Service Plaza in Pennsylvania. At 4.04 a.m., his vehicle exits the Pennsylvania Turnpike at exit 286, which is the Reading-Lancaster interchange. The toll ticket had a spot of blood on it, suggesting he was already injured. At some point, his car was parked at the back of the Sensenig and Weaver Well Drill Company before it was later driven into the creek. At 5 a.m., the first employees of Sensenig and Weaver arrive. At 5.30 a.m., the car was noticed with its lights off and the front end was in the stream of this creek. Blood was smeared over the driver's door and the front left of the car. A pool of blood was found on the back passenger seat and floor, and $200 in bills were scattered around. Luna was found face down in the stream under the car engine. 
He was wearing a suit and a black overcoat with his court ID still around his neck. He was stabbed 36 times around the chest and neck with his own pocket knife. His throat was slit and he had a head injury. Now, despite all of the injuries, his cause of death was ruled homicide by drowning. No suspects or motive for murder was ever determined. The FBI leaned toward calling it a suicide and concluded that he was alone from the time he left his office until his body was found. Trust me, we're going we're gonna to talk about that after I give you guys all the details because I honestly still cannot believe that. But I'll give you some of their reasoning here. So the local Lancaster County authorities, including two successive coroners, ruled it a homicide. Additional evidence collected during the investigation captured a second blood type and partial print, as well as some grainy footage from near the time of the gas station purchase, which was made with Luna's credit card at the Sunoco Service Plaza. Let's talk a little bit about why the FBI might think that this is a suicide, which absolutely blows my mind, and trust me, we're going to break some more stuff down at the end of the episode, but before we do that, we do have to take a break. You can either fast forward or meet me back here in a few minutes. So here are some reasons for the suicide theory. Luna did not have the expected defense wounds on his hands, and many of the wounds are shallow, which are called hesitation wounds on suicide victims. These would be the stab wounds that he had, the 36 of them. Luna was set to take a polygraph test concerning $36,000 that disappeared from a bank robbery case that he had prosecuted after which he had suddenly come into possession of a large sum of money. He also had a credit card that his wife knew nothing about. He had $25,000 in credit card debt, and his name was on an internet dating site. Along with the suicide theory, we have to take into consideration the accidental suicide theory. He was trying to fake a kidnapping, fake an attack, and he accidentally took it too far. I really don't grasp that at all, alright? And it's a very rare occasion that I interject my own personal opinion when I report on cases on this podcast, but that just... We'll get to a little bit more here. So here's some of the reasoning for considering it a homicide. The Lancaster County coroner who performed the autopsy ruled the death a homicide by drowning. The pool of blood in the back seat suggested that Luna was in the back and someone else was driving. It should also be known that two years after his death, anonymous federal sources told reporters in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore that Luna probably committed suicide. In Lancaster County, they do not agree. The coroner, who was Dr. G. Gary Kirshner, was asked by the FBI to change the ruling on manner of death to suicide. He declined and said that he stands by the conclusions of the autopsy, which was homicide. Now let's look at this Poindexter Smith case that he was working on because there is a connection there. 
In late September 2019, defense attorney Kenneth Ravenel uh, and self-described good friend and mentor of Luna was indicted for alleged collusion with a drug kingpin. Ravenel served as the defense counsel for one of the defendants in the last case he worked on, which was the Poindexter Smith case. In the final days of Luna's life, court records show he did struggle with the case. On the day that he disappeared, federal judge William Quarles ordered an investigation into the handling of an FBI informant who was Luna's main prosecution witness. During the trial, it came out that the FBI let the informant run wild in the streets of Baltimore, and the informant continued to deal heroin while under FBI supervision and still received undisclosed perks. Ravenel and defense attorney Tuminelli charged that Luna kept these problems from them, violating the Brady rights of the defendants. Judge Quarles agreed and ordered an investigation. The inquiry was to begin the next day in court, but that was the same day that Jonathan Luna's body was found. Luna's supervisors told him to shut the troubled case down and offer the defendants a plea deal. There was a problem with this solution, though. In earlier court documents, Luna alleged one of the defendants had engaged in a drug-related murder connected to the case. If this was true, it made the defendant ineligible for a plea deal. On the evening of Luna's death, court reporter Ned Richardson heard Luna having a loud, heated, disruptive argument with Ravenel and Tuminelli over the terms of the plea deal. When it was found that Luna was missing, his supervisor went to his office and found the unfinished agreement on Luna's computer. He completed the agreement and submitted it to the court. Now, like I said, the case was ruled a homicide by Lancaster County. The FBI wanted it to be overturned and called a suicide. The investigation is still ongoing, and there is a reward of $100,000 for information leading to a conviction. Before we start spitting some ideas here, we got to credit the Baltimore Sun, MysteriousUniverse.org, Fox43.com, and Newslank.com. And again, huge thank you to Nikki for uh, this great suggestion of a case and doing some great research as well. So let's talk about this for a minute. So what you're telling me is that Jonathan Luna stabbed himself 36 times in the neck and chest, slit his own throat, got out of his car, and somehow ran over himself or fell in the creek face down, and then the car landed on him because he was found underneath the engine face down, right? Okay, so we we have proof that there was blood before we had it on that toll ticket. We have it in the back seat. There was also blood from another person found in the vehicle. We have a partial print that does not belong to Luna on the vehicle. All of these would suggest that he was probably not alone. Now, I do understand the concept of hesitation wounds. I do understand that. But let's put this into perspective for a second. How many cases have you seen 
cases where people have taken their own lives. How many have you seen where somebody stabs themselves 36 times, slits their own throat, and then either falls or jumps in a creek? I can't name any of them. Apparently this is the only one. Crazy, right? Another thing too, why didn't he finish the plea agreement before he left the courthouse? It was on his computer. He could have finished it, hit the send button, but he didn't. He was having a heated argument with two other lawyers who are kind of shady, all right? He needs his glasses to drive. Why were those still on his desk? Why was his cell phone still on his desk? That honestly tells me that somebody was probably in there and rushed him out of there in a hurry. The fact that the FBI got a hold of the coroner and wanted to change the ruling on manner of death to suicide. No, that is that is the crazy one of the craziest things I've ever heard, right? One of the things too that they say the suicide wise because it was Luna's knife. Which was, uh, it wasn't even really a pocket knife. It was like a pen knife. You know what I'm talking about? You have those pens and you pull it apart. There's a little knife. They didn't even find that until two months later. To be honest with you, they're not even sure that's the murder weapon. They say that's the probable murder weapon. It was found two months later. And uh, this is where a 100 state police cadets who were aided by FBI agents and U.S. Marshals had conducted a search at the time the body was found. So you're telling me all of those people did not see it at the time the body was found, but two months later, they found a probable murder weapon there. <laughs> I just, I really don't, I really don't foresee this. I mean, I understand he supposedly had come into a lot of money, after $36,000 was reported missing from a bank robbery case that he had worked. I do get that. Let's talk about this for a second. Just because the guy's cheating on his wife doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to kill himself or anything of that nature. I think it had a lot to do with the FBI. I think it had a lot to do with the case he was working. Personally, the fact that the FBI let their informant still sell heroin while under the supervision of the FBI and still gave him undisclosed perks. Uh, you know, there's a lot of shady stuff going on here, but I would always love to hear your opinions and what you guys think because this case does not make sense and uh, definitely a murder in my opinion. Obviously, I'm not a professional investigator, but I am also not alone in thinking that, and there are professional investigators that believe he was murdered as well. So, there's that, along with coroners. Let me know what you guys think. It's a pretty wild episode, something to think about. You know, like I said, there's still an open investigation in Lancaster County, whether whoever else doesn't agree with it, but they're not budging on the, on the homicide theory. So, I suppose, until next time, I will see you folks on the flip side. Take care. I hope you guys have a good Christmas, good holiday, and a happy new year. Be safe out there. And I'm out.